and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we delve into Doctor Strange, our comic book graphic novel of the month for the month of April. Doctor Strange is Separate Reality. And this was all read in great anticipation of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which just came out. And that was the much anticipated follow on to the original Doctor Strange movie that, oh my gosh, was like, we're nearly talking six years later. Crazy. But, you know, that is the MCU as far as all those big epic events. And Doctor Strange had been in like five films up till then, anyhow, now. So he hasn't been absent from the screen. So, with that said, joining me today is Doc. Doc, how are you? Great today, Angus. How are you doing? Good, good, good. I want to set the table here, Doc, with an introduction. And this comes from historian Brad Wright who described in his book, Comic Book Nation, The Transformation of Youth Culture in America. Steve Ditko contributed some of his most surrealistic work to the comic book and gave it a disorienting, hallucinogenic quality. And this is in reference to Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange's adventures take place in bizarre worlds and twisting dimensions that resembled Salvador Dali paintings, inspired by the pulp fiction magicians of Stan Lee's childhood, as well as by contemporary beat culture. Dr. Strange remarkably predicted the youth counterculture's fascination with Eastern mysticism and psychedelia. Never among Marvel's more popular or accessible characters, Dr. Strange still found a niche among an audience seeking a challenging alternative to more conventional superhero fare. Doc, I don't think there's a better encapsulation of the spirit, the history, the legacy, the heritage here of that Doctor Strange character. Reed, that is that is like such a fantastic little paragraph uh, about Stephen Strange. Like, I will admit that I was definitely not a huge Stephen Strange fan growing up, and you you kind of introduced me and got me a little bit more into reading him. And it is he is. He is such a, a breath of fresh air if you're if you're looking to get away from some of the the common superhero tropes that it just it, it's it's different it is these those were the worlds that he goes on the creatures that he meets they are very different from a lot of things you you read in Marvel and DC and it's really done well it's not just a gimmick they really do it well and uh, you know the, I mean that you can see from the from Doctor Strange's runs that I think it's perfectly put yeah it's he's a he's a really interesting character that has. Definitely uh, probably do a whole podcast just on Strange and his history and Inception and everything. Yeah, Doc, and we're going to get into a little bit of that when we head into comics archaeology in this episode. But the person I have to give credit for that turned me on to Doctor Strange was our buddy and our brother, G. And when G had moved into town and we all, our whole crew was, was coming together there that we would hang with in high school, it was in middle school that he actually had a the Marvel encyclopedia. And it, and it wasn't a, a big tome at that time. What Marvel was doing is they would, it was like a handbook, but they did it, they brought it into issues and they did it into alphabetical order and they would put these issues out and they were basically character encapsulations and summaries if you will, of where the character first appeared in comics, his special abilities, any of the equipment, you know, in Doctor Strange's instance, there was a whole little section, a, a balloon out, a section out of just the Sanctum Sanctorum, you know, the Cloak of Levitation, the Eye of Agamotto, all that good stuff. That captivated me. That absolutely captivated me. And that caused me to then go in and start to read Strange. 
look for back issues. And, you know, Doc, that was the early stages of the direct market. So what was interesting is that those traditional retailers, and a lot of them ended up being bookstores, would also have comics over in their magazine section. So sometimes you could walk into one of those places and some of the places that were still maintaining spinner racks, such as hobby shops and five and dimes, that sort of thing. And you could find several year old comics there. And Marvel was notorious for reprinting previous issues and trying to repackage and introduce characters. And they did that quite often with Strange. So that that was my foray into Doctor Strange. And one, with also being a big fantasy sword and sorcery kind of guy, this was kind of a cool mashup of, of a character, and I absolutely loved it. Now, we read Doctor Strange, A Separate Reality, which is a 2020 graphic novel collection bringing together the works from Doctor Strange, Volume 1, starting with issue number 180, which came from May 1969. And this isn't all-inclusive, but a, a selection of strange appearances. To then Doctor Strange Volume 2, number 5, from December of 1974. And in between, there's a lot of Marvel premiere issues, which I know both of us really loved and we'll really get into in depth. But that's quite an interesting swath there of about five years, maybe, of, of strange material. And what's interesting about his publication history is it's a very, very, very beginning. Doctor Strange started in an anthology series, and anthology series was Strange Tales. But when he started to have his own book, it, that book started out good because he built up a following and a head of momentum there with Strange Tales. And then basically Strange Tales, I believe, then converted over to then being Doctor Strange. I think they just kept the numbering system of Strange Tales going, but then just started calling it Doctor Strange, if I'm not mistaken. The readership there started to wane. And... It went from a monthly book to every other month to every other couple months. Now, Strange throughout his comic book history has actually, oddly enough, benefited from that because there has been a cavalcade of really influential comic book illustrators and writers who at various times came to contribute to the Doctor Strange series, his saga, and build, uh, build on that absolutely mind-blowing foundation that Steve Ditko had laid down. Okay, I could go on forever here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restrain myself. And Doc, why don't we head into a little Kirby Colonel, a little kernel of knowledge about our namesake, Jack. Hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Colonel. Doc, in today's Kirby Colonel, this is Jack Kirby, Doctor Strange, and Steve Ditko, and was looking for a correlation, a connection here between Jack and Doctor Strange. Well, the most obvious one is this. Jack drew so many of the covers for Strange Tales, and as a result, drew Steve Ditko's character often for those covers. That was basically his contribution in the early stages of Doctor Strange's life to helping out, assisting, promoting the Doctor Strange character through those incredible Kirby covers. And Doctor Strange at the very beginning was pretty much a backseat. It was the second part of this anthology series, the Human Torch being up front. And then, of course, you had the Human Torch and the Everloving Thing together teaming up for many of those issues. But then as Strange's popularity began to grow, 
he went from just this little pop out at the bottom right of the cover to taking up half the cover. Sometimes he was the main picture on the cover within the torch, human torch being just that little pop out. So it really varied as Strange's popularity began to grow. And Jack did a really cool job with the character, which then, Doc, that had me thinking, well, really, what was that connection between Jack and Steve Ditko? And when you look at it, Jack and Steve were the Silver Age, the Marvel Age, the visual stylists, the you know trademark look. And they also authored many story arcs with their characters. I mean, we know Stan Lee provided the scripting for those collaborations. But what folks don't necessarily realize because of the way in which comic books at the time were dividing up the illustrative credits and the writing credits was that many story arcs to those classic series, whether it be Fantastic Four, whether that be Spider-Man, whether that be Doctor Strange, whether that be X-Men, whether that be Thor, were actually developed, those story arcs, by Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko for their respective characters. And this made Marvel what it would become in the 60s and the decades that followed. And, you know, many applaud Lee and Kirby, but I, and um, this is not to take anything away from Stan Lee, because very clearly Marvel would not be what it is today if it weren't for Stan Lee, if it weren't for the scripting that he provided to those comic book series, if it weren't for his being a promoter, and an ambassador of comics the way he was. He literally put the industry on his back and through some very lean times, allowed it to survive and then eventually thrive. But I will say, from a visual standpoint for these story arcs, that Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were the visual identities of Marvel and the characters that they created. And a lot of what we see up there on the screen today of the MCU is attributable to them. What say you, Doc? I, I think you put it best where you, where you said that Kirby and Dicko were the Silver Age. And they did, they did such an amazing job of just defining that era. And, you know, every even though I'm, I'm not saying that other artists copied what they were doing, it just they set that kind of standard and they set to look for it. You know, like like you could argue that like uh, Kubrick kind of defined like space age movies after his 2001. Everybody didn't try to imitate Kubrick, but they definitely there were a lot of movies that took that same tone and that same kind of like trippy atmosphere. And I think that's what Kirby and uh, and Dicko that's where their you know their strengths were that they that they did the same kind of thing. It's like they set the tone for it. I think I think you nailed it just dead on because it's. It's this amazing interlocking with all these artists and these, you know, even even with the scripters and everything that they, they make this amazing mesh of the standard that just goes through all of the Silver Age and into, you know, you can even see uh, elements of it still popping up now and then, even in, you know, comic comic books of the uh, current day and everything. I think it's uh, such an important thing. I'm glad you went over that because it's it, it does show just where that influence comes from and how, how strong it was, you know, that, that it's still sustained to this day in some ways. Yeah. Doc, and it, it, I think the lineage, you can draw a direct linkage here to both Kirby and Ditko, inspiring the next generation of comic book illustrators who would be coming in with not only a desire to do comics, but many of them were coming from fine art, illustration, 
some graphic design elements, and namely, Doc, when you look at, and may he rest in peace here, Neil Adams. Neil Adams was directly influenced by Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. There's no doubt about that. But Neil Adams came in and took the artwork quality to a whole other level. Jim Starenko, same thing. Frank Bruner, who we'll talk about, very much the same way. Gene Colan. Gene, Gene was a little more of a contemporary, because I believe he's the oldest of all those that I mentioned right there. You started to see the quality of the artwork just go up 10, 20-fold, 100-fold, as far as what we were seeing in the comic book pages. And that is all a direct reflection of that foundation that Ditko and Kirby established at the House of Ideas. Because, Doc, as much as we are both very big DC fans, you more so than me as far as breadth and depth and knowledge is concerned, particularly during the 80s and beyond. But DC at that time was very sterile. They had a, a, an image and a look, and they were very consistent. You know, it was like uh, hot dogs and apple pie and Americana. Okay, nothing wrong with that. It was a predictable product. Marvel turned a lot of the conventions on their ear, not only in a breadth and depth of character development, but also visually what you'd see on the comic book pages. And as a result, many of those early Marvel artists would eventually migrate over to DC and transform DC in the 80s into that you know, juggernaut <laughs> era that they had with the re-envisioning and reimagining of some of their characters from the, you know, holy trinity of Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. But I think to, to bring it all home here and put a bow on it, I, I believe it all comes back to Marvel Age, Silver Age, Kirby Ditko. And there you go. There you go. <laughs> so with that, Doc, let's head into a little creative chatter about our primary writers in this anthology series here, this collected works of Doctor Strange's separate reality. And that would be writers Roy Thomas and Steve Englehart, and then our illustrators, Gene Colan and Frank Bruner. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative chatter. All right, Doc, this creative chatter, what I'd like to do is focus on what many of these creatives were doing in the 70s, since that is where we are grounding their production in these works, because again, we're talking 69 to 74. We've covered many of these creatives before, and some we haven't. But Roy Thomas, we've done an extensive profiling on before, but Roy is one of the most prominent U.S. comic book writers, especially known for his comic book version of Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian. He was born in Jackson, Missouri. He first made his mark in comic fandom as the editor of the fanzine Alter Ego from 1964. After a short stint as assistant editor at DC Comics, Thomas found his way to Marvel Comics in 1965. He wrote scripts for a variety of Silver Age comic books, including runs on Sgt. Fury and Zombie Commandos, Uncanny X-Men, and Doctor Strange. Doc, I don't know what more can be said about Roy Thomas that we haven't covered in previous episodes other than this. And I think this will come to bear here when we delve into this collection of stories. Roy Thomas is an extremely well-read man. His literary influences come out in his comic book scripting, his dialogue, 
his character development, there's no doubt about it. And I think we're going to find some impressions, some influences that are quite overt when we start to get into this series, because many of the strange stories here, some were written by him, but the vast majority of these were during his time as an editor over at Marvel. So he edited many of these stories. And we all know that if you've written something and now you're editing it, you've got a lot of sway and influence over directionally where the character in these story arcs are going to go. And I would not be surprised, Doc, if Roy also recruited some of these writers <laughs> that we saw over in Marvel Premiere because of their pulp background and being able to introduce some of those pulpy elements and characters. Yeah, no doubt. You see that influence really early in this reading through the uh, separate reality, for sure. Yeah. So then our second primary author here within this collection is Steve Englehart. Englehart had a potent run here on Doctor Strange, originally with artist Frank Bruner and later with Gene Colan, in which Strange's mentor, the Ancient One, died and Strange became the new Sorcerer Supreme. Englehart and Bruner audaciously also created a multi-issue storyline in which a sorcerer named Sissinag, which is basically Genesis spelled backwards, goes back through history collecting all magical energies until he reaches the beginning of the universe, becomes all-powerful and creates anew, leaving Strange to wonder whether this was paradoxically the original creation. Editor-in-Chief Stan Lee, seeing the issue after publication, ordered Englehart and Bruner to print a retraction, saying this was not God, but a God, so as to avoid offending religious readers. The writer and artist concocted a fake letter from a fictitious minister praising the story and mailed it to Marvel from Texas. Marvel unwittingly printed the letter and dropped the retraction order. So Englehart's Doctor Strange, number 14, featured a crossover story with the Tomb of Dracula, number 44, another series which was being drawn by Gene Colan at the time. In Englehart's final story for the series, he sent Doctor Strange back in time to meet Benjamin Franklin. So very clearly, Englehart had a very strong and long run here with the Doctor Strange character. He did work with both of our primary artists here within this series, both Frank Brunner and Gene Colan. So Doc, let's Let's move on to our primary pencilers, and those were Gene Colan and Frank Bruner. Now, Gene Colan in the 1970s specialized in horror comics. Now, that's near and dear to both of our hearts. When his work appeared in the Warren magazines, Creepy and Eerie, throughout the 70s, he also did the entire run of Marvel's Tomb of Dracula with Marv Wolfman from 1972 to 1979. And Doc, I know I have brought this up before, but it bears mentioning again that a massive, massive influence on the development of one Todd McFarlane artistically was Gene Colan and specifically his Tomb of Dracula run. Matter of fact, he has said, referring to McFarlane, that this would be the one series that if he was forced to take one series on a desert island and that was it, he'd take that one. He thinks so highly of the art in it. Fun series for sure, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. And and I can see very clearly, particularly in the evolution of Todd's work on Spider-Man and then going on to then end up run there over at Image Comics and what he would develop there in, in his style. I, I, I see the Gene Colan influences. There's just no doubt about that. He then, referring to Colan, took over Howard the Duck from Val Meyrick and made his cult series about Marvel's ill-tempered duck together with Steve Gerber for several years. And then in 1970s, his co-creation, colon, here, is Brother Voodoo. He made that with Len Wein for Strange Tales from 1973 onward. And Brother Voodoo would end up playing a big part here in the Doctor Strange 
universe. So that's quite cool. Now, Doc, the, the one creative here who we've never covered before and who seems to elude people because his body of work in comics may not be all that vast, but the quality of what he delivered when he was in comics was amazing. And he kind of reminds me an awful lot from an influencer standpoint, but not as well known, of like a Jim Steranko. And that's Frank Bruner. Because Frank Bruner studied at New York University Film School and at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. He has worked as a magazine illustrator since the late 1960s, Wynn Magazine, I'll Be Damned. Around the same time, he did his first comics for Creepy Magazine of Warren Publications. For Castle of Frankenstein, he also did a comics feature called Smash Gordon. He eventually got a job at Marvel, starting out as an inker on Tales of the Watcher in 1969. He did several other jobs for Marvel, like Howard the Duck stories with Steve Gerber, until he got a regular run on Doctor Strange with Steve Englehart in 1973. During the 1970s, Bruno was also a productive illustrator of paperback covers. He eventually focused on animation design, like the X-Men cartoon series, and fine art painting during the 1980s. As a cover artist, he was hired by Star Reach Productions and DC Comics. He additionally drew for Star Reach titles like Star Reach and Quack. In the 1980s, he appeared in Marvel's Epic Illustrated, which Epic Illustrated was a fantasy anthology series designed for a more mature audience. It was Marvel's attempt to compete with Heavy Metal Magazine, as best I can describe it. I'm a big fan of Marvel's Epic Illustrated, and just in the past several years, having found that, it was one of those hidden gems for me. So it makes no surprise that you had someone of Frank Bruner's caliber there participating in Epic Illustrated. And uh, frankly, Doc, uh, and we'll get into this when we review the art, I didn't realize it at the time, but a lot of those iconic Doctor Strange covers were actually drawn by Frank Bruner. And a lot of that imagery that you see, popular on posters and t-shirts that are in fashion as far as being hip or from the 70s that you see younger folks wearing now, a lot of that art is Frank Bruner. I have to say, to add in that, I absolutely love that early 90s X-Men cartoon Absolutely love that, and that he worked on. I didn't know that he worked on that. That's 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 iconic to me. That's one of the that's one of my favorite story. That Justice League Unlimited and that X Men from the nineties. Absolutely love those. Yeah, Doc. And matter of fact, it's so iconic that Disney's bringing that series back. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's going to be part of the offering there over on Disney Plus. So they're going to do a retro nineties animated series. Because of the popularity when it was running on Fox Network of that X-Men series. And I believe you can now, since the acquisition of Fox by Disney, watch that now all over on Disney+. Plus. They, I believe they have that entire series over there. So, Doc, as we've been focusing in on the very rich heritages here, both in comic books and animation, and delving into the strange character, let's head over for a little comics archaeology for a hidden gem. And it's hidden by most of the general public. Those who are into Doctor Strange realize his origins. But let's look at the birth of Doctor Strange in Strange Tales. I said that, good man. 
shoes have you found there? Comics Archaeology. All right, Doc. Here we are in Comics Archaeology, and what I wanted to frame our discussion around is the foundation with which Doctor Strange was built. And Strange Tales became a split book with the Human Torch and with the introduction of Sorcerer Doctor Strange by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. This 9-10 to page feature debuted in Strange Tales number 110, you know, it would be in July of 1963. And after an additional story and then skipping two issues, returned permanently with Strange Tales issue number 114. Steve Ditko's serialistic, mystical landscapes and increasingly head-trippy visuals helped make the feature a favorite of college students. As a matter of fact, it was so much a favorite with college students that Stan Lee would go on to actually do college tours promoting Marvel on campuses. And this happened in the late 60s and early 70s, particularly with the advent of the Silver Surfer also Doctor Strange and the Silver Surfer tended to be the most popular topics during Stan's presentations as he was canvassing these campuses. So eventually, as a co-plotter and later sole plotter in the Marvel method, Steve Ditko would take Strange into ever more abstract realms. Adversaries for the new hero included Baron Mordo, who was introduced in issue number 111, Dormammu in issue number 126, Clea, who would become a longtime love interest for Doctor Strange, was also introduced in issue number 126. Lee and Ditko interacted less and less as each went their separate creative ways. The storyline culminated here at the Ditko run with the introduction in issue number 138 of Eternity, the personification of the universe. In issue number 146 was Ditko's final bow on the series. Steve Everett succeeded him through issue number 152, and followed then by Marie Severin, who self-dinked quite a few issues, and then was inked by Herb Trempe in some of the earliest Marvel work. And then another cosmic entity, the Living Tribunal, was introduced during Severin's run in issue number 157. Dan Atkins took over penciling duties from 161 to the final issue in number 168. So, Doc, when we look at Strange Tales, that anthology series is a keystone. It is the foundation with which Doctor Strange, I mean, shoot, they even share a name together, would be born. Unlike other comic book characters that would go on to have their own series early once making an initial splash. Like, you know, you had Astonishing Tales with Thor in there. And then Thor would get his own book pretty quickly. And, you know, Fantastic Four, the same thing. And then Spider-Man 2. Strange, it took a while. And, you know, you go, wow, why wasn't he as popular as he could have been? Well, there's another way to look at this. And that's if you allow something to mature in its own time, the quality of the illustrative work and the writing sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes, is actually better because it's not rushed. And I think you truly find that when Doctor Strange, throughout his career here as a series, was not a monthly, but would come out every other month. And the quality of the illustrations were really good. 
and the writing was a little more coherent as far as story arcs and plotting. The fact that Doctor Strange started out in an anthology series, they were shorter stories, obviously, because it's an anthology. And, you know, you're not having to cover an entire book with a long, drawn-out story. I think it benefited from this origin being in an anthology. I agree. It's You get kind of like the boil down to the essentials of the story. You don't get a lot of fluff with it. Like, you know, when you get that origin, uh, Strange Tales 115, it's just like all meat. There's no, there's no filler. There's no starch or anything. It's just, it's all really, it's all, it's just good stuff. And it makes it a tighter story. And, uh, and like you said, I, I don't, I, I mean, I can't think of one. And now after between the dark hole that we did episode and now reading this, I've, I've read more strange than I thought I ever would read it. I, I loved it all. And I can't point to one book and think, wow, the art wasn't that great in that book. I mean, the, the art, the illustrations are always so amazing in these Doctor Strange books. And especially when they get to some of these really wacky worlds and dimensions. They do such an amazing job um, conveying, you know, how wacky and strange some of these uh, some of these different dimensions are. That uh, that's I, I agree. It's like they did they did a really good job. You can see that evolution with you know going from Strange Tales into that first 1969 series of Doctor when it actually becomes Doctor Strange, and you can see that evolution. And I think said it best where they just took their time with it they didn't rush it and they started in strange tales and they really cemented something and i think they realized they had something pretty interesting and they could do something different than the rest of the comic book world was doing at the time doc i almost get the impression when viewing a doctor strange book from these late 60s and early 70s that this was one of the few books where basically an artist could let their hair down and just go creative. And it, it, it appeared to be a rather self-indulgent series for an artist to get into when you're taking in every one of those panels, looking at the level of detail, looking at how different this series looked from any other of that era because of that cross-dimensional traveling that Doctor Strange would do, the invoking of magic and how that was portrayed on, on the page and all of these different creatures and things. It's like, whoa, this is really a, a playground, a sandbox that an artist illustrator could go crazy in. When the illustrator is like faced with, I, I need to, I need to draw the dim the dimension of Dormammu. Okay, what do I base it on? There's nothing to base it on. <laughs> you know, when you have when you have Peter Parker going through, you know, New York, there is a New York. You know, you can't make, you can change it around a little bit, but you can't. It's a city. It's an American city. So, but with Dormammu, it's they they said they can really let their hair down and they can really flex creatively and just create whatever whatever kind of wacky things they can come up with and. I, I would say 99% of the time it works. And I think the, uh, the art really portrays portray like a dimension that's calm and you can feel it through a page or if it's chaotic and dangerous and everything. And the art, I think they had the perfect artist working on this, on these books. And uh, because they really come through with some really incredibly original um, artwork with some of these domains and dimensions. I agree, Doc, and I'll point back to the originator, that being Steve Ditko. Yep, Steve Ditko. The groundwork, the foundation, the stylings, everything built off of his foundation for this character in the series. And, you know, just just amazing. Just amazing. And, and the reference with which many of these artists would then perpetuate the character is is seen 
There's no doubt about it. And uh, it's very, very cool from that standpoint. I, you, you see variations on a theme, but they never change the theme. theme the theme is Ditko. And uh, it's, it's great from that standpoint. Well, Doc, let's head over to on our literary aisle where we delve into our story and our art and our in-depth discussion of Doctor Strange, A Separate Reality. Arlando, there's our literary aisle. All right, Doc, now that we're on a literary aisle, what were your general impressions of this collection? Because truly it was a collection of stories. What I'd like us to do here is... If we see some common themes, let's call them out. If we see some commonality within the arcs, let's call them out. I, 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 there are so many stories in here. Going down and reviewing every one would just... Ugh, we, we would be here for days, literally. But I, I also want to touch on here perhaps some of the literary influences. I had mentioned before how very well-read here one Roy Thomas. I mean, Roy had such a vast knowledge of popular fiction, which also meant some of it having its roots in pulp and the pulp era. So what do we have here, Doc, in your opinion, when we're looking at Doctor Strange? Are we building a fantastical world? Are we building on a horror world? What What is this? How, how would you, not being initiated earlier on into Doctor Strange and now really having immerse yourself in the character. How, how would you categorize the themes and arcs, literary influences, and, and the world feel of Doctor Strange? Well, it's definitely, I mean, I think the, the title of the collection is perfect, A Separate Reality, because I think the one common um, theme we're seeing throughout all the different arcs in this collection there's different realities out there. There's different dimensions. It's all good. Definitely, I feel like it's, I don't feel so much as a fantastical world is being built, but more of like a kind of a horror world is being built for sure. You have you have some really truly terrifying creatures that are out there that always want to break into our reality and you know control the earth or just destroy it. You know, take your pick. I mean, either one. But it's uh, it's definitely you see. I mean, first and foremost, you can see it in the names of some of the creatures. You have that that H.P. Lovecraft influence for sure. And we know this from um, even with uh, uh, Robert Howard coming. You know, like Lovecraft via Robert Howard you know, of Conan fame, of course. But you see this huge Lovecraft influence, especially when we the art gets started with uh, Marvel premiere number three. And it goes through, I believe it's 14, issue 14. And it's it's just it's amazing. It was my favorite arc in this collection by far. I enjoyed the whole thing, but this one was particularly great because it just it really screamed Lovecraft to me with uh, the creature's names and just the pacing and uh, how you know we're having the emergence of basically this this cosmic being elder god that wants to break into our our dimension so i really loved it for that and i really love to see this creation of this the development of this horrific world and the one thing that i i found really fun with some some would think oh it's just an easy solution but i like that um and when he when stephen strange fought a lot of these creatures he would banish them to another dimension. And because I, I still don't have a huge, as far as Doctor Strange goes, I'm always curious, like, is he banishing them all to the same dimension when he banishes creatures? And do we ever get to see this dimension in later stories? Uh, maybe like Darren Mordo, he sends Strange to this dimension and he's been sending all these other creatures. And so I always that's always been on the back of my mind when I'm reading through this. Like, is it this one horrific 
Uh, not to mention that Stephen Strange has created because it keeps banishing these horrible creatures there. But I, I really just, I just really love the uh, the pacing of that one, the Marvel premiere arc. I mean, like I think it's like I said, number three to 14, 15. That one, that one really grabbed me the most out of all of them because it did have, to me, it was the biggest H.P. Lovecraft influence. As you, as you well know, and I'm a huge Lovecraft fan, and I love that cosmic horror kind of feel to it. Yeah, Doc, there is no doubt that Strange during this Marvel premiere run was leaning hard into the cosmic horror. And what's interesting within the Marvel premiere run that we read is that we have a cavalcade here of writers and illustrators. And to give you an example, a good portion, an early portion of that Marvel premiere, those stories are written by none other than Gardner Fox. Now, when you talk about a pulp writer extraordinaire, that's Gardner Fox. I mean, yes, folks, this is the man that gave us the Flash of Two Worlds, okay? But but Fox is not acknowledged enough for his body of work. I, I believe he, he had developed a Conan spinoff called Kothar, the Barbarian. He was a massive influence in the early stages of what we would call geek nerd culture. He was an influencer over on the development of Dungeons and Dragons, actually. And there are a couple of his pulp books that had inspired certain creatures and even mechanics in the game, which is kind of cool. And he just does not get enough recognition and acclaim with regard to his contributions. And he was here from the very beginning. It, it, it was just absolutely wonderful when we started to get into those cosmic horror elements. Their anchoring that charge was Gardner Fox. It was like no better person. In one of these issues with the Marvel premiere, we actually have writing credit going to Stan Lee, and then we have none other than Barry Windsor Smith providing art. Later in here, we have Gardner Fox, and I believe it's Gene Colan, for a good portion of the Fox run. But then we also have Jim Starlin coming in. In other areas of this Marvel premiere, we have Barry Windsor-Smith and Frank Bruner together collaborating on the art. And then eventually in Marvel premiere, I believe once we get up into issue nine, we finally have the Steve Englehart-Frank Bruner marriage happening, where you will see the transition of Strange coming out of Marvel premiere and then into his own Volume 2 series, a rebooting of Doctor Strange-named issues. So quite quite, quite the story here. I believe the Marvel premiere, Doc, was as a result of the actual named Doctor Strange issues that you had Roy Thomas working on, eventually falling out of favor with readership. Just It had died down. This was a way for them to reintroduce the strange character, get away from the superhero trappings that we saw from the latter part of that run by Roy Thomas and and Gene Colan, and get Doctor Strange a little more grounded back into the Stephen Strange character, into a darker horror realm, which, if we're looking at trends within comics during the day... This was the height of Tomb of Dracula, the reintroduction of monster comics, the relaxing of the comics code, the introduction of the magazine format for some more graphic content there that definitely would not have passed the comics code's muster back in its height in the day. So I think Strange is a bit of a reflection of the times, 
But at the same time, I think it's truly an inspired tact, if you will, or road collectively that both from the editor standpoint, which yes, Roy Thomas was there at Marvel as an editor and highly influencing Strange's evolution during this time after having been a, a writer for the series for a period of time. I believe that the Doctor Strange that we have today would not be that Doctor Strange if it weren't for this crucial era in the development, the evolution of the character here in the late 60s, early 70s. Right. I think this was this uh, the stories that, cur- that are cor- uh, collected, excuse me, in uh, separate reality are, I think it, it really defines who and what Strange is and the tone of the comic. Like you said, I think you said it perfectly. He, you know, Strange doesn't fall into the same trappings that most superheroes fall into. Because, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's not really a superhero. He's he's this co- he's a cosmic being, too, even though he's a human basis and everything. He is more on the cosmic level with, with who he's fighting and what he's protecting. And I think they really did a great job in this collection of showing that that evolution of him. From, you know, in the, in the early days of Strange Tales, when he was the doctor, the arrogant doctor, until he, uh, as we see at the end of this Marvel premiere arc, that he actually becomes the sorcerer supreme he finally gets that mantle after you know the events of that of that uh story arc so it's yeah it's really it's a really super important thing and i'm glad that i was reading this with you because it is it really does show uh, and it really does help me as far as my grasp of the character too and where he came from and where he went how he got there because you know me i always like to know how things happen in comics i don't like to just pick up a book at issue number 22 i like to see those first 22 issues to see how we got there and this really i think filled in a big gap for my knowledge of dr strange yeah and doc if i were to point to a single issue within this collection which would have to you know stand on its own and say hey angus what is most representative of this collection i would go to that marvel premiere issue number 10 where you have the ancient one crying out to strange Destroy him, my son. Destroy the devil god called Shumagorath. Don't be a fool, Strange. If you kill me, the Ancient One dies. That, from not only a story perspective, from an illustrative perspective, is just so strong. It has all the essential elements here of Doctor Strange. It is high, high drama. Serious consequences for everything from a personal standpoint, because we're talking the death of the Ancient One here and the culmination of Doctor Strange into the Sorcerer Supreme, but also dealing with a very powerful, extra-dimensional, cosmic being. I mean, Shumagorath and the Cthulhu mythos and everything surrounding all of that really comes to bear here in that issue. All the elements are there, the horror, the... The, the the cosmic, the art, the extra-dimensional, the pa- unconventional panel design. At one point, the showing up of Dormammu, even. I mean, everything's in there. Everything is in that issue. And not a single panel is anything short of awe-inspiring. From the unconventional panel designs to just the the fluid artistic nature of it all it it is it's amazing i mean brunner's amazing in it i think uh, Engelhart did a great job with the story i i absolutely love it so 
you know, I, I, I don't want to shortchange any of the other creatives and their contributions here, but there are plenty of great stories and content in this collection. But that for me was the signature issue within within the series. Yeah, yeah, that was it was I, I agree hundred percent. That was that was an amazing issue. It just it's it's showing kind of like passing the baton from the ancient one to strange and just all these things that come to light. Like you like you said, all the all the mythology and all the the different things they were talking about earlier in the other issues of Marvel Premiere, it really does climaxes in issue number ten. It was heartfelt too because you know when you know Doc realizes what he has to do. It was it was really um emotional and you know towards the end of that as well for sure. Now, Doc, I do want to give a heads-up warning to our listeners and, and readers of these comics. If you do pick this one up, which, of course, we highly encourage you to, to read along in April, because we felt that much of this collection thematically had direct applicability to Doctor Strange and the Multiverse Madness. I like seeing Stephen Strange, his his face, his persona. He doesn't need a mask. He doesn't need to give himself an all alternate identity, have a secret identity. He, he is dealing on such a cosmic level, and due to the character being who he is, who has his origins and being a brilliant, arrogant surgeon who loses his hands and everything... This is not a guy who's going to hide behind a mask. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, once they finally got that little element out of the way and returned him visually back to Doctor Strange and get rid of the mask, he's absolutely great. So that was the only thing within this series that if I'm being hypercritical, I had issue with as a strange fan and reader. But Gene Colan's art surrounding everything and how he developed out even further, the rogues gallery, his portrayal of Nightmare and all that sort of stuff, just absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Oh, my gosh. And Eternity. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Eternity was amazing. <laughs> imagine imagine as an artist, you're like, okay, you have to draw Eternity. Yeah, it was an amazing. And, and Colan's artwork, the kids, is when drawing Eternity, is right up there with any type of intricate, Kirby, crackle, poster art stuff that you'd ever see. I mean, it is right up there. And, and so, frankly, is a lot of Frank Bruner's art. But I think Frank Bruner, artistically, stylistically, is a, a cool combination of, of Dicko meeting Neil Adams' sensibilities. Because I, I truly got the feeling when taking in the whole Bruner side of the house, as it related to the art, he drew Doctor Strange more realistically as, as a body, as a human. Very much like when someone was first taking in Neil Adams' rendition of Batman, and Batman was looking more realistic on the page and the level of detail that you started to see in that Batman figure. I started to see a hyper level of detail within Doctor Strange, him look more realistic, but 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 working in the fantastical. And that for me, Doc, that contrast, that heightened contrast made the fantastical and those extra dimensional and cosmic worlds and those beings even more pop off the page because Doctor Strange, as an as as a being, as a rendering, was so grounded in his physical form. No, I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, the those depictions were they were amazing, and he did. Uh, you know, it's like 
you don't think they would need to make the fantastical more fantastical, but they they did the, the different colors that we use and everything. It really did. I think you said it best. It just pops off the page, and it was it was really amazing. Some of the artwork in this. So, Doc, uh, other than the issues that we had mentioned, did you have another one in particular that was of of note for you that you either thoroughly enjoyed the story arc or thought the art was pretty mind blowing? Yeah, I did like the uh, like the, f- the first. I think it was uh, 180, 181, and one eighty two of uh, Doctor Strange the sixty the nineteen sixty nine series. I thought the artwork was really cool in those too. Like we were just talking about with Eternity and everything. Those are the ones I really like. Those I think they really stuck out. You know, putting aside the the him becoming Stephen Sanders, <laughs> he sounds like he's a door salesman now, door to door salesman. <laughs> but besides besides that whole thing, which we kind of just wa- wa- washed over, I, I like that one too because I did. I just like that idea of you know eternity the the embodiment of the entire universe is i mean it, it was just it was really amazing and i could just imagine an artist being tasked with that of you know what how do i draw this i thought that was a really cool one and um and even i think it was one of the later ones too yeah even a 1974 series um that last look the last arc that was in the compilation of the collection i thought that was really cool too with with Cthulhu's. And you know another agent of the uh, I'm sorry that was that was in a Marvel premiere sorry that, there it is Doctor Strange 1974 but they just go into more of you know that story and it kind of like it was a nice cap off to this collection that we kind of see you know he's kind of coming to his own now he is now the Sorcerer Supreme and so now he like people kind of look at him a little bit differently and um, I thought that was pretty cool we get a Soul Eater which was I thought was a really cool creature as well and uh, different things like that and, uh, it was it was a nice it was I think it was a fitting into the uh to the collection yeah i agree with you doc and in particular i was a real big fan and still am to this day of that dr strange volume two issue number four dr strange master of the mystic arts dr strange meets death and that is that iconic cover of dr strange falling out of the mouth of a skull with a lot of cosmic art backing him up and where boundaries decay. And this truly is Doctor Strange going up against death. And I'm like, wow. If you are a big fan of horror art, of just Halloween, the macabre, the occult, all that sort of stuff, this issue is a feast for the eyes and Bruner's art is in hyperdrive on this one I mean he he just ping pongs from you know ancient realms that look like they're in a medieval European castle lore to extra dimensional cosmic Lovecraftian horror elements in here to zombies to a guy who looks like from the face the Crypt Keeper from Tales from the Crypt to Doctor Strange uh, on this cosmic Pegasus-like horse that then decays as he's going through dimensions. And there's a ton of Kirby Crackle in there and this floating skull and looks like the Eternity elements in there too. I mean, it is just amazing. I I just kept going back to that issue going, wow, this is just... Uh, amazing stuff by Bruner and just so vastly underappreciated because Bruner's run doing Strange was not that long but man, every single issue that he illustrates is just mind-blowing it is so good so, so good 
And the other the other character I really liked that was introduced, definitely a secondary character, was uh, was Silver Dagger. I thought that was a really cool character. And I think, I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Silver Dagger popped up somewhere when we were talking about Darkhold. And I, can't, I will never be able to pinpoint which issue it was, but I know Silver Dagger, you know, popped up. I just love the story that it was a priest. He was going to be, he thought he was going to become one of the next popes, one of the youngest popes. He was overlooked. He was kind of arrogant, and, you know, he started getting into the occult, but he didn't go completely bad, but he's not also completely good. So I kind of like the I like the character and how the, he was characterized and, you know, the interactions, because he, he sniffs out demons, basically. You know, it's black and white with Silver Dagger. If you're a demon, you're done. He's going to get you. And, you know, he's the one that he came to uh, the Sanctum, and he, he said that Doctor Strange is actually a demon in disguise. And I thought that was a really cool character. I'd like to see more of that character. And um, I don't remember, you know, coming across Silver Dagger when I was, granted, my, most of my Marvel growing up was X-Men and New Mutants and things. So there wouldn't be a lot of Silver Dagger in those. It's, it's definitely one of those characters that stood out for me towards the end of this collection that I really liked. Yeah, that was one of those gems in there that truly has a really cool background having been developed that could be deployed for future projects even showing up i, I, I it would be cool if this character showed up in the mcu somewhere i was in in a, in a doctor strange yeah in a doctor strange film it would be really really cool really really cool well doc this has been an incredible exploration of the fantastical of the cosmic of the horror elements of Doctor Strange in this anthology collection, Doctor Strange's Separate Reality. I'm going to give you the last word on who you would recommend this graphic novel to. If you haven't read any Doctor Strange, um, when you want to like kind of get a little bit more insight into what's going on in, in the movie that's that's out now, I think this is a great collection. It's not. I I went into it thinking it was going to be one big story arc, but it's not. It's it's a couple different story arcs. Um, and I think they do build on each other, and they and they show his evolution, his progression from um, his origin to actually becoming the Sorcerer Supreme. And I think it's I think it's a great um, it's a great encapsulation of of the character of Doctor Strange. I recommend it to anybody who wants to get either a basic understanding of Strange, or if you want to kind of delve a little bit deeper into uh into his characterization but it's a it was a really it's a really fun read um i'm sure everybody will have their own favorite arcs but that marvel premiere arc for me that was that was it because that that was to me that that was the culmination of lovecraft the mystical arts and the the serpent cult and all these things that just came to a head and it's uh i think anybody with that just has even a passing interest in strange will really get a lot out of out of this uh collection and with that, kids, we would love to hear from you once you have read Doctor Strange, A Separate Reality. Please leave us a message via the Anchor app or send us an email at kirbyskidspodcast at gmail.com. And Doc, thanks for coming in and reviewing Doctor Strange, A Separate Reality. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun, I guess. We're Kirby's Kids. Exactly.